Listen, the, the, my problem is, is I've invested so much time in these mm -hmm. movies. I feel like I have to keep watching them. I kind of envy Brett. Yeah. And part of me is like, I wish I never started. Yeah, but then you'll just be reading all about me through. That sounds like so much more fun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because whenever I walk into a mo uh, Marvel movie now, I have to flip a coin. Like, is it going to crush my soul or is it going to make me kind of happy? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mandatory Media, the show about the books, movies, TV, poetry, and other pieces of media that we really love and really should have been mandatory on your media study syllabus, but probably weren't. We've got three hosts here today. I'm Brett. I'm a poetic scholar and a scholarly poet whose skill set includes the capacity to identify and create chiasmi. My article, The Art of Line, or Fantasies Imitatio Day, on Sir Philip Sidney, J.R.R. Tolkien, and David Bentley Hart was recently published in Radix Magazine. Also joining me is... Hello everyone, I'm David. I've got a bachelor's degree in media and communication studies, but I mostly spent my time reading and writing about sitcoms, film, and video games. Hi, I'm Seth. I'm a wannabe film critic, a student of the theater, and a lover of the arts. Today's episode will be covering three poems by Christina Rossetti, including Amen, Uphill, and Passing Away. I thought I'd ask my typical question where the answer is usually no. Do you guys, have you guys read much Christina Rossetti or know much about her? Wikipedia.com slash. <laughs> I, I don't know a lot about Christina Rossetti. No, nor her work. I know the name, but uh, as, well, as far as I, as, as what my awareness previously was before reading these poems. Okay. There's always a chance that she was like covered in an English 104 class or something, but. I never had to take 104 because I have credits from other places. And the other places didn't make you read Christina Rossetti, I guess. No. I think in mine, one of my poetry units was gangsta rap. The other <laughs> one was, I don't remember what the other, the other one might have been during COVID and we could have just skipped poetry or we were doing Shakespeare. Okay. Okay. So, so no Christina Rossetti, single tier. Yeah. Now, now you're recovering her anyways. So I will fill that gap in your life. Um, okay. It's very possible. In fact, I bet you both have at least heard one of her poems before. Um, she's a major English poet from the end of the 19th century. Her father was a political exile from Italy, and she learned Italian herself. Her brother, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, is also a major poet. Her most popular work is probably The Christmas Carol in the Bleak Midwinter. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's probably it. Yes, that's it, I bet. And her most studied work is probably her fantastical narrative poem, Goblin Market, which is the kind of work loved by readers from 8 to 80. Have you guys come across Goblin Market, or is it just in the bleak midwinter? I, I have not, but there is nothing I want to read more in the world right now than Goblin Market. Yeah. Uh, I considered doing that one, but then I chose <laughs> three lyrics instead. Maybe. Well, I will read it. I'll read it later. Oh, okay, perfect. 
Okay, so with George Herbert and Gerard Manley Hopkins, Christina Rossetti is one of my favorite English devotional poets, and her religious orientation was Anglo-Catholic, which is a kind of high church Anglican. Let's see. Um, if you to get what Harold Bloom says about her. Yeah. Let's go. We did it again. <laughs> He writes that she is a poet of majestic and permanent genius, with a stance unlike any other elegist of erotic sorrow. Her touch is invariably very light, her voice pitched low, but disturbingly felt. And now we can discuss her poem, Amen, which I will now read. It is over, what is over, nay, how much is over truly. Harvest days we told to sow for, now the sheaves are gathered newly, now the wheat is garnered duly. It is finished, what is finished? Much is finished, known or unknown. Lives are finished, time diminished. Was the fallow field left unsown? Will these buds be always unblown? It suffices, what suffices? All suffices reckoned rightly. Spring shall bloom where now the ice is. Roses make the bramble sightly and the quickening sun shine brightly, and the latter wind blow lightly, and my garden teem with spices. Do you guys have any initial responses to this poem? Amen. Amen. Um, Sorry, that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I, I've been, I've been in an acting for Shakespeare class recently, so I've been counting a lot of syllables. Um, so I appreciate how dedicated Rossetti is here in this poem to her syllable count. And it's like, it's, it's, it's eight beats a line and she's not swaying from that. So it gives it this really great musicality and this kind of dependability that I, I personally really enjoy. I'm I'm so bad at writing poetry like with a with a meter with a beat. So uh shout out Rosetti. She's great. You know, I wonder if I have oh I don't think I do. Oh, but so fun story. There's actually Ruskin, one of Christina Rosetti's contemporaries. When he read some of her poems, she said that you need to work on your metrical regularity because irregular meter is one of the awful plagues that have come upon our modern poetry. I'm paraphrasing, but it's interesting that you say that, and maybe this is an instance where she adjusted her verse to comments like that. Hmm. Yeah, I also think maybe this is me totally misreading poetry and poetic history i feel like that was more you know the the importance of meter and kind of more structured poetry was something emphasized more heavily in the past given that whenever i read a contemporary poet they're just like words on a page whatever i order i want and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work i'm not sure i i don't know that much about poetry so i'm gonna uh, give my answer anyway uh i i, I want to see what brett says because i want to see if i'm right um i i think maybe not necessarily probably like free verse is much more 
common these days and or like i guess socially acceptable or thought of as like kind of the modern art but still like sonnets and other form of uh not free verse or structured poetry is is still taught and and written oh yeah maybe not necessarily to the same like I don't know what it like uh, same exposure level as like free verse, but yeah. Sorry, I think I should clarify. Um, I I think of like when I think of like contemporary poetry, and this is not true for all. It's actually probably not true for most contemporary poets, but like styles that are trendy right now. Mm. I go Rupi Car. Yeah, <laughs> and so maybe that's what I should say. It's like, and I think that's 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 the impulse of of. A lot of poetry I've encountered by fellow students is kind of more free verse because it you kind of go, what are rules? Does poetic language matter? No, I'm going to put words on a page. And I had a professor, you know, offer a different perspective where she was like, you know, sometimes poetry now, because it's not so much maybe poetry being read aloud, so you're not writing poetry to be heard but instead you're writing it to be read. So you want to write it in a way that's visually interesting. And that's awesome. I also have great respect for people like Rossetti and Shakespeare, who have been, I've been reading a lot of recently, who are committed to the sounds of good language. Mm. Yeah, I, I think both of those views are fair. Like, I, I mean, there's lots of free verse. There's probably less formal verse, but... And David's probably skewed because he's probably read more of my poetry than any other. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And I am self-consciously old-fashioned in my writing mm. style. <laughs> Somewhere, Christina Rossetti writes... Um, I think it's when she dedicated a book of hers to her mother, she said in a sonnet that the book has many sonnets. And if I ever published a volume of poetry, I could say the same. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that lots of modern poetry does try to be more visually interesting than to sound interesting, although both aspects are at play. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's really interesting from a a writing perspective because you definitely don't realize how hard it is to write this sort of structured poetry. Yeah. Like I remember for one creative writing class, forced to do a, uh, a English sonnet and an Italian sonnet. And those, it drove me up the wall because it was so much more difficult than I thought it would be. <laughs> and just trying to figure out all the words, see what words can fit in there and write the rest of the poem around them, which is definitely not how you should do it. But, and then the professor took us through like his workflow. I think Brett was in the same class, probably. I, I wasn't in that class. Okay. The, the prof took us through the workflow for one of his published poems and had like drafts of it started in this and didn't really have a structure and then he refined it down based on what he was feeling and, and ended in this poem that fit the structure it's like that's really cool and mm. it's it's a cool product at the end because you can have your meaning and you can have your your structure in there and somehow it all works 
Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's my problem. That when I try to write to a structure, I'm trying to write to a structure rather than finding a structure that works for the words or the the meaning or what I come what I come across. I I'm thinking right now. Speaking of free verse of uh, David, did you see the production of As You Like It at Bard? Yeah, I think of Brett. Have you ever read As You Like It, or have you seen this production? I've read it. Okay, Jaquise, which is so weird. Um, when he's going off stage one time, he's like, "Whatever you do, don't speak in free verse." And it's part of like another thing where he wants people to speak right. He's like, "Just don't speak in free verse, and you'll be fine." I changed my page and I've lost Christina Rossetti. No. Oh, there she is. Thank goodness. We lost Christina Rossetti. Where, where are we going to find her? Someone find her. <laughs> it is over. Oh, wait, that's how the poem begins. Um, <laughs> what is over? Oh, nay, how much is over, truly? Mm. Um, yeah, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, it is over, or it is finished, or it suffices? I feel like the kind of it is finished brings to mind the biblical in the in the biblical sense i mean it's called like amen so you think of like maybe like a post-genesis you know it is finished i don't know just oh, yeah. absolutely i i mean in john nineteen thirty, um before or in the passion and crucifixion christ says when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head mm -hmm. and gave up the ghost. Yeah. And I think that that kind of resonance is meant to be heard yeah. in the poem. Even the structure with question and answer is almost like a catechism. The mm -hmm. answer is so authoritatively spoken, which is one of the things that always strikes me about the poem. Like, you read it, and like the answers are hard, but you don't, it doesn't feel like you can question them. Like it is over, what is over? Nay, how much is over truly? It is finished, what is finished? Much is finished, known or unknown. It suffices, what suffices? All suffices reckoned rightly. Mm. And I wonder yeah. if perhaps part of that is just from the Keats heuristic where truth is beauty, we tend to sure. find things that are beautiful, more true, or they have a sense of authority for us. Mm. And I, this is such a gorgeous poem, the feminine rhyme scheme, where the rhymes go over in two syllables, really helps that, like over, mm. um, so for, newly, duly, truly, Finished, diminished, unknown, unsown, unblown, suffices, ices, spices, rightly, brightly, lightly. Like it's just such a kind of gorgeous flow to it. Yeah. And especially with that last stanza where you have the three lines between the ices and the spices, the that makes the last rhyme come almost unexpectedly. It's delayed, and yet when it comes, it fits. Perfect. Hmm. Yeah, it's pulling it back to earlier in the stanza. There's kind of this sense of um, 
expectation or incompleteness that I like in the poem as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like waiting for for something good to come. Um, will these buds be always unblown? Like we're we're there. There's a there's something good coming, but it's not necessarily here yet. Um, which I guess is also kind of a, a, a religious thing too. Like, um, you know, talking from a Christian perspective, like the expectation for the return of Christ. Um, yeah, if we want to take that sort of religious lens to the poem. Yeah, and I think that Rossetti absolutely means something along those lines. Like the first stanza echoes the biblical saying that you reap what you sow harvest days we told to sow for um did i say toiled but now the so that's like we worked hard to get these crops planted and ready and now we're getting ready to gather the wheat the fallow field is the field that you leave to rest so that the land can renew itself to be more fruitful another year and then you have spring shall bloomer now the ices Roses make the bramble sightly. You have the ice of winter that will be met by the coming spring. You have the prickly rose bush that will have roses one day. And eventually, you'll have the garden teeming with spices. Where now the ice is. Yes. Spicy garden. Mm-hmm. Spicy like garden. the garden of Adonis. <laughs> I don't want to have to mark this one as explicit, Brad. <laughs> Good thing we didn't read Goblin Market then. Is there questionable content in Goblin Market? You know, it's probably just our post Freudian age and our dirty minds, but ah, it sure. is like it's this lovely poem about young sisters standing up for one another but there can be a sexual interpretation as well um i was learning about freud the other day uh he was a bit of a revolutionary back in the late 19th century and early 20th century Um, because well one of his crazy early ideas that kind of got him on the map was he suggested that um it wasn't just women that could get hysteria that men could get it too, probably get it more often, and he himself was probably hysterical. Mm. And everyone's mm. like, dude, you can't be saying this. But he's like, nope, nope, it's true. Anyway, Freud. Mm-hmm. He, was a, he was a progressive for that time and age. <laughs> Even though we see him as kind of old-fashioned now, he was once a real cool dude. Well, let's just say that he had many views on many things. Some of them yep. look better from our current standpoint than others do. Yep. Just, I, I don't want to have a long conversation about Freud now, but there are what? things. <laughs> you guys have any more comments on Amen, or should we move to Uphill? I'm good here. Yeah. Let's see. I think my favorite line in the poem is spring shall bloom where now the ice is. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
this might just be a dumb question, which I might cut out later, but um, the the last line of the poem, is that a literal, like, growing plants that are spices, or is that the metaphorical, like, spice of life kind of thing? Um, well, I, I think it's kind of, I, I think it's mostly metaphorical, like, it's, like the image is of a garden with spices in it, but it's probably representative of some kind of future paradise full of these kind of exotic riches, these lovely things. Mm. Yes, and it's probably echoing like the Song of Songs, maybe like that kind of thing, maybe the Book of Revelation. I'd, I'd want to look into that more, but that's kind of the biblical framework of imagery that Rossetti is working with. Yeah. And now, uphill. Ooh. Does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. Will the day's journey take the whole long day? From morn to night, my friend. But is there for the night a resting place? A roof for when the slow dark hours begin. May not the darkness hide it from my face? You cannot miss that in. Shall I meet other wayfarers at night? Those who have gone before. Then must I knock or call when just in sight? They will not keep you standing at that door. Shall I find comfort, travel sore and weak? Of labor you shall find the sum. Will there be beds for me and all who seek? Yea, beds for all who come. Do you guys have any initial responses to this poem? My very first thought when I was reading this, and I can't find anything online to suggest that this is the case, but my first thought was, did Eugene O'Neill take the title of his play from bits of this poem? Oh, a long, day's journey long day's journey tonight. I'm specifically looking at that first stanza. Will the day's journey take the whole long day from morn to night, my friend? Like, did I? I have no idea, and it doesn't look like there's anything definitively online whether or not he did. But at least from the two websites I looked at, but that was my first thought. You scrounged the whole internet to websites. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My The depths of my research. If I can't find it on the first search, I'm not interested. Did you even look at the Reddit posts? Were you doing real journalism? No, I didn't look at the Reddit posts. I'm sorry, David. <laughs> I've left my journalist era behind me. Uh, I am I familiar with the play. I don't know if that is the source, but it might have been. I mean, I'm trying to remember, and that play if I'm thinking of the right play, does quote multiple modern or poets from around that time. I think it's mostly a few decades later, but they do quote classic poems in that play, if I recall correctly. Um, okay, so in, the ver so in the scene directions, act one, scene one, um, right at the top of the scene of Long Day's Journey Tonight, which isn't quite what we're looking for, but it's getting close. Um, at the rear of the set are two double doorways with... Uh, okay. Against the wall between the doorways is a small bookcase 
with a picture of Shakespeare above it, containing novels by Balzac, Zola, um, philosophical and sociological works by Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Marx, Engels, um, plays by Ibsen, Shaw, Strindberg, poetry by, including Rossetti and Wilde, and Kipling, and a few others. Oh, yay, Rossetti. Um, is it, does it just give the name Rossetti? Yes, Wilde gets mentioned once, and yes, okay, there, there is a quote from uh, Wilde's The Harlot's House, for sure. Okay, there is a quote from Rossetti in the play, but it doesn't specify oh, which one. Um, I'll read it and maybe I'll know. Uh, Dante, Gabriel. Uh, is it from the Blessed Damsel? Uh, it doesn't say. Oh, what, what is it? Look in my face, my name is Might Have Been. Oh, that's I'm one of his. called No More, Too Late, Farewell. That, that's from one of his sonnets. Okay. The, the other but Rossetti? But clearly aware of poetry of that era. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like, I, I mean, to know, he probably read The Sister if he read The Brother. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Huh. I'm going to bring that observation to a professor later. You just have to have some really whip-smart insights that Brett will pre-prepare for you, and then you can look really <laughs> smart in class. Well, no, that was his own idea. Yeah, we're not talking about it in class. I just want to ask her about it. Be like, hey, what do you think of this connection? Mm. Well, that would be fun. Okay, anyway, anyway, back to the poem. Um, I can give an early response to the poem. Sure. Like... So this is by Paul Elmer Moore, who I believe it's probably around 1904 or something when Dante published his sister's complete poetical works. And he said that this poem is perhaps her most perfect work artistically. The culmination of her pathetic weariness is always this cry for rest, a cry for supreme acquiescence in the will of heaven troubled by no personal volition, no desire, no emotion, save only love that waits for blessed absorption. She needed not to pray, for her life was an unbroken communion with God. Hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. Her life in unbroken communion with God. Yeah. Again, also, you can see a almost catechistic structure, structure in this poem where you sure. get the question and response yeah although this one does feel more like a dialogue almost yeah like there's two speakers mm -hmm. the one well, asking the questions and then the one responding mm -hmm. well, what is your emotional response to this poem because its tone is there's a degree of comfort but it's a hard comfort this is gonna be like way out left field but let's hear it for some reason it makes me think of like the organ trail of the 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 pioneering spirit and the the long road and the kind of like stopping between waypoints with this like they would have seen his wilderness between oh that. sure and also the fact that i played the organ trail video game and this kind of captures the feeling <laughs> <laughs> you know what david i think that that's not 
that far out. All you need to do is replace Pioneer with Pilgrim, and then I think you're right on the mark. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's this, it's this. It's always a good day when Brent says that I'm almost right. (laughs) (laughs) Although I don't have the authoritative answers. I'm no expert on Rossetti. Yeah, that's fair. You're not an expert on Rossetti? No, I'm not. I'm so disappointed. I know, like, I put on this air of expertise, but it's all a facade. Oh, no way. Academia is a lie? (laughs) Surprised I haven't even finished my undergraduate degree yet. Almost. Are you graduating in the spring? Yes, I am. Um... Yeah, it's this kind of this this long day's journey into rest, mm-hmm. where we have to go through these hardships, you know, through all of our what she say labor is the word she likes to use. Um, will there be beds for me and all who seek? Yes, beds for all who come. Um, I don't know to what degree. I I am assuming. Rossetti is uh, a Christian, given that she wrote a very famous hymn. Um, and if kind of continuing on in that sort of religious <clears throat> uh, reading of her of her work, it's very much like the soul's long journey towards God. Um, and kind of, you know, life has many hardships, but at the end of the day, you know, the day being the, someone's life or whatever, you know, there's, there's rest. Yes, and maybe this will be a fun time to go from that into an interesting doctrinal point about Christina Rossetti. Ooh. So, um, I'll quote Harold Bloom here. And Harold Bloom, yeah. he's, this is the kind of thing where I feel that people should double-check what he says, but he at least cites someone which is good. He says, Jerome McGann first noted that the apparent oddness of these two final lines, which can seem a grotesque parody of Christian hope, until you realize, as he shows, that Christina adheres to the strange Adventist doctrine of soul sleep, Mm. what happens to the Christian souls between the moment of her death and the great advent of Christ's second coming? Does the soul go directly to a last judgment and then wait patiently in paradise for a resurrected body to join it? Or does it sleep a long sleep until, at the millennium, it wakes up forever? Christina firmly adhered to the latter view, a conviction that governed not only uphill, but a considerable number of her more interesting poems. So that's one of the interesting things. So according to Harold Bloom and Jerome McGann, this poem's final stanza suggests that we will, we go through the hardships of this life, and then we will have the sleep of death that will go on until Christ's second coming. And then we will we'll wake up to the new dawn of the new earth and all of that. Yeah, and I mean, it's 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 a position that I don't think a lot of... I mean, sure, uh, Seventh-day Adventists hold that, and a lot of other traditions do. Not every Christian does. Um I'm not even sure if most mainstream kind of denominations do. I, um, I don't think so. It, it no. is more of a... It, it, it's a concept that I think bears similarities to like 
the Jewish concept of Sheol, which is like a place that's referenced in the Bible, though it's not always translated as that. Um, but in sort of that ancient civilization way of understanding death, there is this like land of the dead that all dead go to. And it's sometimes in in Hebrew and and uh, in Hebrew theology and, and some contemporary uh, Jewish theology of like the souls of the dead rest in the land of darkness before you know the good ones are resurrected again when the Lord returns or whatever. Um, but yeah, kind of it's 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 not always a like a super mainstream Christian belief now, but it's it's definitely you can read that in the Bible. <laughs> and it's also like a little. It's like a little indie uh, Christian belief. <laughs> yeah. Like that would have been quirky. Quirky is probably not the right word, but it would have been peculiar at the time for someone who was Anglican as Christina Rossetti was to hold that belief. Sure. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah. interestingly enough, kind of connected to that, Another interpretation that I kind of pulled out was the um, more existentialist kind of view, obviously with the the kind of the the back and forth of the 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 wrestling with the I guess the kind of like the the darkness and the light and the life and death and uphill makes me think of kind of like the uh, Camus the you know the problem of Sisyphus mm -hmm. and the whole up and down again and, and finding solace in in that. Yeah. Yeah. Although I feel that a large part of the solace is here put not in the labor itself, but in the resting place that follows. Mm. But that might just be my anti-existentialist prejudice coming mm. in. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, the the poem does have this kind of promise of rest, which Sisyphus famously doesn't. <laughs> he never gets to the top of the hill. Um, but we are to imagine him happy. Mm -hmm. um, if I were to fire back from my pro-existentialist uh, standpoint, I would say that... Um, a, you're you're probably more correct in this interpretation is harder to <laughs> make fully right. But I would also say that that's where the Sisyphean model as a analog or or metaphor for existentialism kind of breaks down. Because sure. at a certain point, like human beings are not endless, and obviously you know like at a certain point the work will end it's not always guaranteed to be the way we want it to be or in the classic like perfect now i'm happy now i no longer have to do this like work of being human but it is i guess i would say where that that specific model kind of breaks down and you have to come to the terms of the fact that we are all just human and not sisyphus mm-hmm Okay, so it's this kind of, so in this existentialist interpretation of the poem, then the beds would just be kind of symbolic of death and a death 
that has no resurrection following it. Yes. Yeah, probably probably in my very bastardized uh, existentialist view that I should have probably read more French philosophy about before speaking about. I, I mean, there are... I don't like grouping existentialists together because yeah. it makes it sound like they all agreed with each other because that's not true. Depending on who you, depending on who you are, some people will see that like the idea of death as not like a threat, but rather motivation. That eventually our day is going to end, but we're not here yet, and so we have to make the most of this moment. It's like it's it's this it's this idea that um, I think Camus comes to. I've, I've got this quote in my Instagram bio that's lived to the point of tears um, where, where Camus is, people like to think the existentialists go, nothing matters. And that either leads you into debauchery or nihilism, but that's not where, that's not where Sartre ends up. That's not where Camus ends up philosophically. Their point is that sure, there is no ultimate purpose, which is not, I'm not saying I believe this, but I respect it. They're not saying that there's, they're, they're saying there's no ultimate purpose. And so this is what matters. Our lives are what, are, are what matters. We only have, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 years ahead of us between the time we're born and the time we die, the time we die. So we have to make the most of that. You have to live your life to the fullest because this is the only chance you have, which I, yeah, I guess there, there's something interesting and kind of invigorating about that. Um, which is something I, I, I want to pull over from the existentialists into mainstream Christianity, that I think it's really easy for Christians to go, okay, well, the Lord's coming back eventually, so what happens here doesn't really matter. It's okay if, you know, climate change destroys the earth or whatever or if we don't fix all these problems because the lord's coming back but it's like okay but he's not here yet and it's our responsibility as people of 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 the church of christ to live the time we have here on earth as fully as we can that's my the existentialists have something going on uh perspective yeah, and I agree, but I, I would also say that you can get that sentiment from a non-existentialist oh, point. Oh, 100%. Mm -hmm. But, like, I, I think that virtue ethics and that kind of thing has plenty in its store, but this isn't a podcast about philosophy. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, we're going to be reading The Myth of Sisyphus. <laughs> the week after that, the Nicomachean ethics. There we go. And then eventually we'll get to fear and trembling the week after. We'll be having a four-hour discussion on all the major philosophical movements. <laughs> Only four hours, David? That's kind of a lowball estimate. It's a survey. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have any more comments on this poem, or should we move to our last one? I I think I really enjoy the third stanza uh shall i meet other wayfarers at night those who have gone before um i think that's really cool 
stanza was like, I think you can read that multiple ways too of it could be like a, a kind of fear or a melancholy, but also it could be a really kind of like hopeful thing to mm -hmm. meet other people who are going through the same thing and going uphill in the same direction or have been uphill before to, to know that we're all kind of in it together as humans. I think that's a, yeah. and the fact that you ca could possibly read it both ways too is, is another thing that makes it great too. Yeah. And, and if, if we continue on like reading this as a, you know, from a Christian perspective, it's also like other believers, other people who've, who've gone, who've run the race before us are there too. Reminds me of, that was my turn to quote some, some classic, uh, I don't have the quote, uh, on hand, but I really enjoy Kurt Vonnegut has, has, uh, a book of his graduation speeches that he gave. He used to be a very, well, he was still alive. He was a very popular graduation speaker. And there's, there's one where he, there's one portion of a speech where he talks about like young people, they graduate and then they want to like. I'm going to go solve the world's problems and, and everything. And then he's like, well, hold up. I just got here basically like 40 years ago. I still don't know what I'm doing. And so, you know, it's not like, yes, we need to be worried about these issues, but also it's not your job to suddenly solve mm. the world and save the world. You have to leave yourself chance to, to live. And he later calls it a skylarking and giving your, yourself a chance to skylark, which is, I think it used to be a US military thing where if you were being too frivolous or or silly, they could discharge you or charge you with skylarking. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I read too much poetry. When I hear the word skylarking, I assume that has something to do with Shelley. <laughs> well, actually it's the, it's, it's it doesn't come from Shelley. It's actually the ninth studio album by the English rock band XTC, <laughs> released uh, uh, October 27, 1986. So I think Shelley stole Skylarking from the band XTC. It, well, it could have also been Skylarkin, the Grover Washington Jr. album from 1980, or Skylarkin, the Mick Christopher album from 2001, or Skylarking, the Horace Andy album from 1972. <laughs> I, I should say that Shelley didn't use the verb skylarking. I I just associate skylarks with Shelley. Pitchfork gave Skylarking by XDC a 9.3. Wow. I gotta hear this album. Yeah. Anyway, anyway that's not important at all. Yeah. That's all I wanted to say about Uphill. I think there's lots of good things that you can connect with it and a good discussion that we've we've had of it as well mm -hmm. so now we'll move on to the last poem um passing away from christina rossetti's set of three poems old and new year ditties it's the, by far the best of the three um Harold bloom says of it that it is a highly personal poem written as a superb farewell to the poet's 20s and on the last day of the decade of the 1850s Hmm. So now I'll read it. Yes. Passing away, saith the world, passing away, chances, beauty, and youth, sapped day by day. Thy life never continueth in one stay. 
Is the eye waxen dim? Is the dark hair changing to grey? That hath won neither laurel nor bay. I shall clothe myself in spring and bud in May. Thou, root-stricken, shalt not rebuild thy decay on my bosom for a. Then I answered, Yea. Passing away, saith my soul, passing away, with its burden of fear and hope, of labor and play. Hearken what the past doth witness and say, rust in thy gold, a moth is in thine array, a canker is in thy bud, thy leaf must decay. At midnight, at cockrow, at morning, one certain day, lo, the bridegroom shall come and shall not delay, watch thou and pray. Then I answered, Yea. Passing away, saith my God, passing away. Winter passeth after the long delay. New grapes on the vine, new figs on the tender spray. Turtle calleth turtle in heaven's may. Though I tarry, wait for me, trust me, watch and pray. Arise, come away, night is past, and lo, it is day. My love, my sister, my spouse, thou shalt hear me say. Then I answered, Yea. Maybe I'll say that Paul Elmer Moore, reviewing the first edition of Rossetti's poetry, recounts how this poem called forth the enthusiasm of Swinburne, another pre-Raphaelite, and that after he chanted it aloud to himself, he exclaimed, by God, that's one of the finest things ever written. Wow. And Paul Elmer goes on to say, and Swinburne, somewhat contrary to his wont, was right pure inspiration, less troubled by worldly motives than these verses cannot be found. Even her monotone, which after long continuation becomes monotony, affects one here as a subtle device heightening the note of sub subdued fervor and religious resignation. The repetition of the rhyming vowel creates the feeling of a secret expectancy, cherished through the weariness of a frustrated life. Uh, so Brett, earlier you, you just said that this was your favorite of the three poems. I'm I'm intrigued to to know why this is your favorite of the three. Um, well, chanted aloud, I find it to have such a powerful effect. It is so rich in biblical imagery, and its meter is so perfectly chosen that it just has this cumulative power. Um, and maybe I'll ask you: Did you recognize what is probably the most distinguishing formal aspect of the poem? Is it just an A rhyme scheme? Yes, exactly. All twenty. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Nice. Got it. Which is amazing, and it's done in such a way that it doesn't feel forced. Which is even more amazing. Although maybe I should say here that in his book Genius, Harold Bloom miscounts the line number as 28 after quoting the poem in full. Oh my gosh. So ha ha, Harold Bloom. Take the L, Harold. <laughs> so that's just an example of sometimes Bloom can be a bit sloppy with his writing, but... <laughs> But this poem, on the other hand, there's nothing sloppy about it. It's perfect. Not at all. Or as close yeah. to perfect as a poem can be. Yeah, she's, I mean, occupying a lot of the same thematic territory as other two poems, like talking about um, 
God and death and expectancy and, uh, you know, winter passes after long delay with, you know, new grapes on a vine. And kind of that same imagery we were seeing in Amen. Um, yeah. So I'm seeing kind of a lot of parallels there. Yeah. And it's so touching because she wasn't as well looked upon during her time as she deserved, especially at this time because she's still just ending her 20s here. So she literally did not win the poet's crown yet, the laurel or bay, even though she was writing poems as accomplished as this. But of course, after this, she would go on to be widely admired by people like Swinburne or Gerard Manley Hopkins. Although I don't think that during her lifetime she was ever as well looked upon as her brother. Hmm. Opinion has probably shifted the other way since then. I I can't say I've read much of either Rossetti, so I'm not a great uh, judge of this. I know that I like Christina's work because I'm enjoying these poems. Yes. You know, Brett, what... um changed public opinion, I guess? Is it just the fact that she was a woman writing poetry at this time, or was yeah. it just... Yeah. Yeah. She was a woman writing poetry at this time that wasn't widely looked upon. Like, But even like a, a few decades later, by the time Virginia Woolf is writing, she quotes her alongside Tennyson in A Room mm-hmm. of One's Own. So opinion changed quite quickly but i i mean yeah it's it's one of those unfortunate things where women writers weren't often had to do a lot as much as men or more at that time to get somewhere anywhere near the amount of recognition as the men yeah i think it's an interesting thing with particular artists too of the whole wasn't appreciated in their lifetime which is certainly not a a unique thing there's a number of painters was it was it van gogh it was very famously van gogh yeah yeah so there's i i always find that a fascinating how do you how do you keep creating art that ends up to be like this influential while also just basically never being appreciated during your actual lifetime. Yeah. I I suspect that as this poem kind of says that part of the solution that Rossetti found is in her devotion. Mm -hmm. The voice of the world goes on to the voice of the soul, which goes on to the voice of God. And Rossetti says yay every time in this resignation, this acceptance. Yeah. And it's interesting that, I mean, at the beginning, I think I said Rossetti was one of my three favorite devotional poets with mm-hmm. George Herbert and Gerard Manley Hopkins. And they both published their major works posthumously as well. Herbert's hmm. Temple was published after his death, as was most of Hopkins's poems. Yeah, I guess it's like, you know, when you're an artist, I always think, like, in the ideal sense, it shouldn't matter if you're successful financially because the drive to do art is ultimately 
it's it's not a business investment. It's a personal investment. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think for someone who's like a poet, you it's if you're trying to be a filmmaker, it's really hard to have a day job and also be trying to make movies. And if you're not successful, it can be really tough. If you're a poet, you can probably have a day job and also be doing some incredible poetry on the side. Yeah, there are many famous poets who are tax collectors or bankers. Sure. Like Wordsworth, probably Coleridge, maybe. Um, people like Eliot or Wallace Stevens, like the list goes on. Milton was the son of a scrivener who partly took on his father's role after. Yeah. Lots of poets had their hands in things. I mean, even Shakespeare, he had an investment in the globe. Yeah. Yeah, just I guess I find it interesting how often we we come back down to that because like, especially right now in our society, like if you're able to be like an artist mm. full time, that's that's cool. And that's and that's trendy. And that's like what you're looking at, you know, like the famous celebrities are all like actors and musicians sure. and but they're also all commercially successful and then when you get down to the brass tacks of you know all the all the boundaries and and roadblocks that people face uh for christina rossetti it was unfortunately you know uh sexism and misogyny that that stood in her way a lot of the time and i just i i find it interesting and inspiring how people continue to create art even though they know that like probably yeah nothing will will come out of it and i'm not like saying that christina rossetti was like oh this is just going to be nothing but it's like this very intrinsic motivation mm-hmm. well also at the still t- same time we also seem to value the kind of commercial success that great yeah. artists have it's this like and i, I don't mean to wax poetic too much but like the 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 inherent tie between art and the human soul that I don't think a lot of other um yeah like a lot of other uh, professions maybe is that the word I'm looking for or, or vocations have like the compulsion to you have to do it like. I don't mean to hate on accountants, but I'm going to hate on accountants for a second because I feel like there's an easy target. If if I, if I an accountant wasn't getting paid to be an accountant, would they still feel that drive in their soul to do accountant work if they're not being paid for it? I think that's that's often what separates artists of all stripes, not just visual artists, but, but writers, theater artists, filmmakers. What sets them apart is just this I have to do this, otherwise I don't know what else my life is for. So, um, while George Herbert and Gerard Manley Hopkins weren't published in their lifetimes, Christina Rossetti was, and she was fairly successful, but she wasn't as successful as some other poets in her circle. Yeah, sorry, that's what I interpreted as you saying, because you were like, Talking about how other poets were appreciating yes. her, she just wasn't as successful as her brother. Yes, I, I, I sorry, I just okay. wanted to make sure that wasn't based off yeah. of anything you guys said. I just wanted to make that very clear. Yes, yeah, yeah, and I was just kind of extrapolating 
upon that of like Van Gogh was it the the posthumous kind of recognition is and and like publishing is is a slightly different thing, but also thinking about yeah, just to bring us onto that track of intrinsic motivation to create art, something I've always found very interesting as someone who's interested in a lot of different art forms. Mm. Maybe I'll ask, do you guys feel any biblical resonances in this poem? Or if you'd like, I can just list some and we can... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's probably the most explicit because like, passing away, saith my God, passing away. Um, it was very like call and response to me. Like you, you, you have those like kind of hymns sometimes that are kind of yeah that that call and response. Yeah, and it even just explicitly echoes biblical imagery. Like I feel that there's a touch of Ecclesiastes with the things passing away, but you also get something like First John two seventeen, and the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Or maybe Revelation twenty one four. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And you get this kind of pastoral mm. tree, something like from Song of Songs 2, where you get, My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away, for lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing bird is coming and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land the fig tree putteth forth her green figs and the vines with the tender grape with a good smell arise my love my fair one and come away or later in five one i am come into my garden my sister my spouse i have gathered my myrrh with my spice i have eaten my honeycomb co sorry i've eaten my honeycomb and my honey i have drunk my wine with my milk eat O oh friends drink ye drink abundantly oh but was loved Huh. So yeah, so there's lots of biblical imagery. Yeah. It's just echoed here. Some of them taking almost word for word. Yeah. I have a uh, an intense burning question I would like to ask. Oh, ask the question. What's up with the turtles? Okay, so it's turtle doves. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> that makes... Uh, uh, two thousand percent more sense than turtles calling out to each other during May. It's like, what's going on here? Rosetti just loved turtles. I mean, like, I I'm with her, but like, yeah, it's like, what's going on? Yeah, that was one of the things where I thought, yeah, I should explain that or wait for that question to come up. Yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, even in the passage that I read, you do get the King James saying, the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Yeah, I, I just still definitely thought that was a regular turtle, but now I know it's a dove. Yeah. That good old-fashioned, old-timey language. Poetical mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, so what are your guys, what's your guys' favorite poem or line from a poem or bit of the three that we discussed? I really enjoyed Uphill um and the dual perspectives that that happened up there 
um the other ones are really cool i did the 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 like the a rhyme or like the rhyme scheme for um old and new year ditties um that's that's a really cool poetic device that she used but i think um yeah there's just so many good like single lines that i really enjoyed in in uphill um specifically shall i meet other wayfarers at night those who have gone before um my favorite line from the bunch i think my favorite poem is old and new year ditties but my favorite line from the bunch remains spring shall bloom where now the ice is brett what about you yeah, I, I mean, I'm fond of both of those section, sections as well, and those poems. Well, I mean, I chose all of these from all of Sunny's poetry, so of course I'm fond of all of them. I hope so. Surprised I chose her worst three poems to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give everyone a really bad impression of Rossetti. I'm, I'm, one of these episodes, someone's going to pull out a, this is a movie I absolutely hate, or this is a book I absolutely hate, or this is a poem I absolutely hate. Let's have some fun. Yeah. But I, I mean, <laughs> I just love the last few lines of passing away the last of yeah. the of old New Year ditties. Like, though I tarry, wait for me, trust me, watch and pray. Arise, come away, night is past and lo, it is day. My love, my sister, my spouse, thou shalt hear me say. Then I answered, yea. There's just so much anticipation, so much hope in those lines. And it's just so much fulfillment. And it's, I feel like I can almost taste the eschaton in them. It's so lovely. Thanks for listening to Mandatory Media, everyone. If you want to send us a message, suggest a topic, or complain about one of Seth's jokes, you can send us an email at mandatorymediapod at gmail.com. Our music is composed by Christopher Whitford, and the episode is recorded, edited, and mixed by David. If you would like to see any more of my work, you can visit linktree slash Brett V, that is spelled L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash B-R-E-T-V. If you want to hear more from me, you can visit workingthroughit.substack.com. And if you want to read more of my stuff, you can visit my blog, sethinthefilmscene.blogspot.com. So follow the advice of Jacquees. Is that the hell they pronounced his name in the production? Yeah, and I've heard it pronounced that way in other situations too. Like my prof pronounced it like that the other day. So I'm like, is that just the Shakespearean pronunciation of Jacques? I have no idea how it's spelled, actually. I'm going to be honest. But when I heard it in the show, I was like, 
do they just not know how to? I, I assumed it was Jacques, and they were just saying it with a weird. I, I I thought that it was supposed to be like even more like Englished, so that it would be something like Jake's. J a q u e s. Because I believe it's it's slang for toilet. <laughs> uh yeah the the pronunciation on, on wikipedia says variously jacques and jacques 